0: you just heard is dog of war by the hell yeah babies which means i'm nick bond i'm david and this is how wrestling explains the world it is one of our how blank explains wrestling episodes and this week we are talking about how the four horsemen explain wrestling you and i used to run a website called juice make sugar and on that website, we used to have something called Wrestler of the Week. And when we ran out of wrestlers to write about, we had something called Stable of the Week. And one of the stables of the week, obviously, was the Four Horsemen. You wrote most of that. I wanted to start talking about it through what I think was my favorite piece from that week, which was called, and uh, you can check this out at sugar.com. It is called Tully Blanchard, the High Chief of the mid card. I don't want you to, like, repeat what you wrote in it, but just talk a little bit about Tully Blanchard. He's a really important part of the original Four Horsemen and how they were established, and I I, I want to start with him. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think looking back now in 2018, I think when I published that in 2013, five years ago, I think now I like that headline less than I did at the time because I think that, that calling someone, uh, you know, a great star in the mid card is kind of damning them with faint praise. What I would say now, maybe, is that he was the great gatekeeper. And even within the Horsemen, which were really put together as kind of a gatekeeping faction, he was the gatekeeper within the group. Because you had Ric Flair, the world champion, and he was a wrestling heel who, you know, uh, had great ability and was a good athlete in the ring, but also cheated and was low down and dirty and unlikable. And you had Tully, who had a very similar gimmick. He was also a great wrestling heel. He was maybe a little more vicious than Ric Flair, but a similar style and and similarly a ring general, someone who could really kind of get a great match out of anybody, you know, at the time when the heel was really in charge of Of walking someone through the match, really.
0: Yeah, and kind of explicitly not as good as Ric Flair. Like he was not as good an athlete. He didn't have necessarily the cardiovascular. Ric Flair was
1: the man, and Tully Blanchard was someone who was kind of on the same level as him, but just slightly below, and worked a really similar style. So, like when a babyface like Magnum T A really got the better of Tully Blanchard, it kind of you know made the fans wonder, well, gee, you know, I bet Magnum would do really well against Flair, and that's a super important role. That's really, like like we said, kind of like the high chief of the mid-card, really the, the captain of the supporting characters, the person who really gets people ready for the champion. Throughout wrestling history within the business, that's always been a really respected role.
0: And one of the things you mentioned I always really liked was that they were consummate champions. They all were legit the best people in their division. Obviously,
1: Ric Flair, who already in 86 was a multi-time world champion, definitely you know the top star for more than a half decade in the the Mid-Atlantic specifically, and the NWA at large. You had Tully Blanchard, who was a consummate TV U.S. level champion, a really accomplished regional champion in the territories, especially in Texas. And then you had the, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew of you know Arn and Ole Anderson. And Ole Anderson, arguably maybe one of the most accomplished tag team wrestlers of all time. And uh, Arn Anderson, they had brought in to be, uh, you know, a few years earlier to, to be his new partner. So they, and they were they were a great tag team in the tradition that the Anderson brothers tag teams always have been, whether it was Gene and Lars or Gene and Oli or now Oli and Arn.
0: It is weird because of the dynamic he has with Flair, but I, I think Arn Anderson Tully Blanchard does get credit in a way that I think Arn doesn't, it, and is something you notice in early nineties. WCW, which is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that he is kind of one of the saving graces of the post-height-of-the-horseman horseman.
1: Yeah, you know, especially, I was listening to uh, What Happened When, Tony Schiavone's podcast. I think this was two weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago. It was one of the more recent episodes. But he was specifically talking about the time when Flair was gone in the WWF. And the title was on Wyndham for a lot of that time. And they're, like, Wyndham and Luger, and they're always the We Want Flair chance. And uh, Shivani came out and said, like, hey, don't you think that maybe this is when we should have put the world title on Arn Anderson? And looking back at it, it's like, yeah, maybe in 1991, you know, like you said, past the peak of the Horseman. But after Arn Anderson has been part of the Horseman to kind of cement his legacy, he really could have been a world champion there. You know, maybe in the early 90s when Flair was away. And frankly, having him there and maybe building the Horseman around him was something that would have been viable at a time where they just couldn't get anything.
0: Over. Yeah. And what was special about Arn Anderson is how well he played, for lack of a better term, like a tough dad. He was a really good elder statesman, but still seemed like he could kick your ass. We keep coming back on
1: this show. Once again, one of our major themes is like things being real. And because he didn't seem like a bodybuilder or a basketball player, you know, or or any of the ways, various ways that wrestlers looked like athletes, but still looked like a guy who could kick your ass. Like that made him so real. Like you said, your, your buddy's tough dad the guy who mows the lawn uh, in no shirt and he knows he's got a gut, but he doesn't care. And he wants the whole neighborhood to
0: see it. And what I think people don't realize with Arne Henderson is that that's kind of a, 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 a legacy name, right? But not necessarily, he wasn't actually related to Ole Anderson, like Ole Anderson was they weren't cousins or anything like that right it was like fake wrestling
1: yeah it was fake wrestling definitely i know that um i think gene anderson's last name actually was anderson but i lars ollie and Arn. none of their names are actually anderson they're they're all fake wrestling family members in the great tradition but you know the idea was like when one guy aged out or went to another territory or you know decided to take a role backstage or whatever you could bring someone else in who you know was a big, uh, thin-haired, hairy, barrel-chested guy, and you could put him in matching tights and you could say his name was Anderson. Uh, once again, Tony Schiavone always points out that it's like, if you hear Arn Anderson talk, it's very clear he's from Georgia. But every time he comes out, they announce him as being from Minneapolis, Minnesota, because or the state of Minnesota, because he's he's part of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. So it's just a, just an awesome example of uh, of wrestling tradition. But But even though... Ole was at the end of his his run, like he was still a super credible wrestler, especially as a promo, like even if he didn't have like the athleticism that the other guys had, like he was still someone who everybody believed could kick your ass, and he definitely kind of transmitted that aura, you know, to Arn. Oh, wait, I should, oh, sorry. <clears throat> I wanted to say, I also wanted to mention in there that Ric Flair is also their fake cousin.
0: Oh, right, yeah. That's <laughs> okay. important. And this is something you also talked about in what we used to call Better Know a a Wrestler, or in this case, Stable, that they came together organically in the sense that they where, like you said, it was planned in the sense that it's wrestling, but they didn't say, like, we're starting this group. They were guys that were all heels together and were like, hey, we work together great.
1: Yeah, I think the way it started, uh, like I said, I've read about this online. I've also heard uh, both Tony Schiavone and Arne Anderson talk about it in various interviews, is that this is in the days of, like, the long mammoth TV day in the territories where, like, everybody would stand around and do not just their promos for the next month worth of TV – But, you know, there are promos for every little town that they went to, like the regional, localized, town-specific promos. So, like, these were literally, like, monster 8, 10, 12, 14, 16-hour days uh, in the days of the territory where just everybody, you know, by the end of it, everybody would be pretty edgy and real ready to be done for the day. It's one of the reasons that, like, wrestlers uh are so mean to people who are bad promos because like if you were a bad promo and it took a lot of takes you'd be holding everybody else up the end or uh, of one of these marathon tapings they they had to do a taping, uh, a promo for some particular town and basically they just said screw it let's get all the heels who are appearing in that town in the same interview and they'll just cut the interview together and say we're the heels we're the champions because they had all the belts at the time the wrecking crew were the tag champs flair was uh Flair was the world champ, of course, and Tully was either US or TV champion at the time. So they had, like, all the belts. So th- they they went out, and uh, while Arn had the mic, he just happened to say, you're looking at the greatest assemblage of, of uh, forces since the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse or something like that. And supposedly, uh, they say cut, and as they're getting ready to move on to the next promo, uh, Shivani turns to Arn Anderson, and he says, hey, that Four Horsemen thing you said, uh, he's like, it sounds like you just named yourself like now that's what we call the heels and everybody at the time kind of like was like oh yeah maybe that's a good idea and it was something that they didn't immediately adopt it actually it kind of trickled down it was an idea that percolated in the company that like the Andersons and Flair and Tully and J.J. Dillon and, you know, and, like we're all coming together and like, yeah, this Four Horsemen thing, this idea of us being together. Like, I think there's money in this at the same time, you know, the booker, like Dusty Rhodes, say, looking for for ways to get himself and his friends into jeopardy, obvious. It said, like, geez, well, could you imagine if all those guys were rolling together and trying to keep those titles by hook or by crook? Like that would be a real force. And I think it took a number of weeks, even within the company before they officially decided this is the four horsemen. It's a real thing. At first, it just started as something Arn Anderson said, and then it was kind of a, wouldn't it be cool idea that people were kicking around the office.
0: Yeah, and it worked uh, extraordinarily well. They very quickly—I mean, they were already at the top—but they very quickly established themselves as a very, very strong heel faction. And in the—and this is something we talked about uh, during the songwriting episode, actually, back when heels were heels, when the point was to not be a necessarily a cool guy but to actually make people want to see you get your ass kicked.
1: Hell no. The point, in fact, was not
0: to be a cool guy. The
1: point was to be unlikable. And that's one of the things that made, I talked about Tully Blanchard earlier, Tully Blanchard so great, is that Tully Blanchard, never played fair, but if you were the kind of guy who, you know, thought that breaking the rules was cool and you cheered him when he broke the rule, he would turn and say, fuck you to you or whatever. You know what I mean? That he would, he would not allow people to think of him as a cool heel that anytime people started to like him, he would find the thing that that crowd did not want to see whether it was cheating, whether it was hiding behind the manager or, or whether it was a, uh, whether it was cursing, whether it was doing something just, you know, unsavory, that he would find that thing to make sure that everybody hated him. So it wasn't just that people, yeah, it it wasn't just that that, that there weren't as many cool heels. It's that if you were trying to be a cool heel, everybody else would think that you weren't a team player because the point of the the heel was to to get the heat to do stuff that was unlikable, to, to create an environment in which people wanted to see them get their asses kicked. And the four horsemen were excellent at that.
0: Yeah, they have, I know I have a tendency to speak in hyperbole, but I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say one of the hottest angles in the history of the territories, if not the hottest, when they break Dusty's leg. They uh,
1: slammed his leg in the cage to break it, and then the 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 baby faces are trying to to get to him to help him, but like he's in the cage, and they are fighting the baby faces away as the baby faces rush the cage, and it's a really dramatic and really kind of like visceral emotional thing, and, and also very violent. It's that kind of perfect wrestling mixture. They do something that's really violent. And there's kind of an emotional outpouring that follows. You kind of need the two together. If you just have the emotions, it's maudlin. If you just have the the violence, it's just violent. When you bring them together, it's that perfect wrestling moment that that makes a lot of money.
0: And in terms of the history of wrestling, that's outside of, I think, and this is something we talked about in a previous episode, Bash at the Beach, that is the ultimate heel moment in American wrestling. Uh, Because we also talked about Inoki uh, during the Vader episode. It really made them feel like they were dangerous in a way that you didn't see, especially in, let's say, WWF. WWF had a completely different, they were cartoons, basically.
1: In the WWF, going back to the days of Bruno San Martino, too, they'd always been really careful not to really let the heels get too much heat. They liked to keep the heat on the manager, historically, and that way you could bring in, you know, whoever you wanted to to kind of run up against the champion. They never really let heels get a whole ton of heat. And I mean, the one time they kind of tried to put a heel on top for an extended period of time, it was Superstar Graham, and he really turned into a cool heel baby face. They were not a very successful promotion at kind of keeping the heat on heels. The NWA, on the other hand, uh, really embraced that and really did kind of try to foster a culture of real enmity between the crowds and the bad guy wrestlers it was really part of what made the whole nwa philosophy work
0: they were so good at getting that heat they they were one of the few southern acts that transcended people actually knew who rick flair and the four horsemen were even if they didn't necessarily watch wrestling in the way that they knew hulk hogan was not to the same extent but it was a transcendent level of heat they seemed like cool Cool guys to people who weren't into wrestling, but if you were a wrestling fan, they were the worst people, and that was probably the best place to be.
1: And I mean, I don't mean to say that they they uh, that everybody hated them because I mean some of the kind of original quote unquote like smart mark or 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 passionate nerdy fans, however you want to put it, you know, it started in Greensboro, the uh, like uh, uh, Bruce Mitchell and John Hitchcock, and their like kind of crew of people. They were some of the original smart fans and some of the original fans who would try to hijack the TV shows and bring signs and things like that. So the horsemen on some level were cool and definitely did um, gain a, a, a certain amount of fandom from people who really kind of understood what wrestling was all about and, and, you know, understood the different layers of the show. But for the traditional wrestling fan, for the quote unquote believer, or, you know, for the person who just went there to be swept away in the show and didn't care to know the mechanics of it, uh, they were definitely, you know, all-time great heels.
0: The teamwork involved in that was, it makes sense that Ric Flair and Arn Anderson are lifelong friends. If you, there's a special chemistry to the Four Horsemen that is also, I I think, part of at least the original Four Horsemen, and, and really Arn and Ric Flair. I think if you're going to talk about what the Four Horsemen is, it is some common, it is basically those two, and then some more or less some combination of two other people. And the quintessential version of that, the original version of Tully, Oly, Arn, and Rick, is the Four Horsemen that people think about, and, and J.J. Dillon. Uh, as their manager. He was specifically Tully's manager when
1: they formed, but he did become kind of like the overall spokesman of the group. Yeah.
0: They were able to keep the brand of the Four Horsemen going, but in the way that, and I think this is a good time to announce next week's topic, uh, the Warriors are a franchise, and then they have a specific team of four great players. That's kind of what the Four Horsemen ended up being. I think it's fair to say is is what's going what the Warriors might be ten years from now. Sorry, Dave. Dave's a Warriors fan. So uh. <laughs> it's
1: alright. Um I, I I saw way more games in the uh Muggsy Bogues, Troy Murphy, and Andres Biedrinch eras than I have during this run where they're actually really good.
0: So what happened was they turned into a franchise. The four horsemen turned into a brand unto itself. And that was sometimes really good, and it was sometimes Paul Roma.
1: (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I think that Paul Roma went in there. I think that's when they tried to bring Tully back, but uh, he had intentionally failed Vince's drug test as a middle finger out the door. And then suddenly Turner got strict about drugs and said, well, you can't hire that guy. He just failed a drug test. So I think that's why Paul Roma wound up in the horseman. I think it was like a last minute deal that was supposed to be Tully coming back.
0: And I think what happens with Paul Rama is he's always kind of treated as the break in the dam of what made the Four Horsemen cool. But I think what you see is that they understand at some point, points and other times they don't, the importance of the Four Horsemen as a consistent underlying theme in the opposition to the WWF because of what they represented when they first started, which was violent heels who weren't trying to get over. They
1: were trying to win and they were trying desperately not to lose. They wanted to win, but they just weren't as good as the top baby faces. So therefore they had to band together and watch each other's backs and they had to break the rules. And that is fundamentally what heels are. That's why the horsemen work so great. At the same time though, like each of those guys is a transcendent individual talent. At least the original core that we've been talking about and like you said continuing on at least flair and anderson always like in addition to being great fundamental heels they were great individual heels and like when i talked about you know tully blanchard is the high chief of the mid card it really is that kind of like a working class philosophy or that approach to wrestling that like kind of like lunch pail approach i guess is the way you would look at it where it's like it's not about getting yourself over at the end of the day wrestling like truly is a team sport and it's about knowing your role and executing it at a high level and those were guys who all had the philosophy of know your role execute at a high level and they also happened to be at the highest level so that's really why it all came together and worked
0: and I think there are other incarnations. Uh, the the Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko version in particular, and also the Brian Pillman version. I think is an interesting version, uh, an interesting roster, if you will.
1: Pillman and uh, Pillman and Arn had that like Jr. and Paul Heyman chemistry, where it was like there were times where they seemed legitimately very frustrated with each other.
0: But they were both such gifted performers, and and that was the thing: is if you put stars in the Four Horsemen and didn't treat the Four Horsemen, as though it was the brand of the Four Horsemen or the franchise of the Four Horsemen, was always going to work for Rick and Arn, or Rick or Arn, but it wasn't necessarily going to extend to a Sid or even a Barry Windham, and I I think that's what they learned late, maybe too late, is that. If you put good characters in this great story, it will work, but it is not a great enough story necessarily. Like, evil bad guys is not a genuinely evil bad guys is not a good enough storyline in and of itself. You have to have a talented cast to pull it off.
1: No, in the past on this show, we've talked about NWO, we've talked about Dungeon of Doom, and it's definitely clear that no matter how over a faction gets, there's never been any faction in wrestling where you could just drop people in that faction, suddenly have them wear the colors, and make them over. It's just never worked. And there, there's there's all these attempts to go back to the well as if it did work at some point, but it really never did.
0: Yeah, there's not a single instance I can think of where it was in any way better the only thing that comes close, and I I genuinely don't think it was, is DX. But that was a much different situation because, at the very least, they had some juice with, what say what you will, but with X-Pac when he came back. He actually kind of gave them a jump start and made them feel edgy because he called out somebody. He played at the same level that the NWO had been playing at. Oh, so
1: for my money, the X-Pac and New Age Outlaws are the superior version of DX. Like Hunter, X-Pac, New Age Outlaws. Like, yeah, that's way better to me than Hunter and Sean uh, farting around. Both the original version and any of the revivals thereof.
0: When I think about it, I, I'm thinking about the very early pre-Montreal Screwjob Degeneration X. For me, at least, I, I enjoyed... Uh, Bret Hart, so much that by extension, I enjoyed Degeneration, that version of Degeneration X. But overall, in terms of quality, I, I definitely agree with you. If you look at the two groups, but that is really the only example. And it's because they had a bunch of guys that were actually talented enough to keep it going, which is what we're talking about. They had, again, say what you will, but Road Dog was an incredibly overperformer who worked with someone who could actually. Put in the work in a match to make the whole thing work.
1: Yeah, and and Waltman was legitimately their friend, and like that was, I'll say, in as much as people know about any backstage details, and anybody who knew one backstage detail knew that one that, that he was legitimately, you know, part of their clique, and that kind of made that work. And then when you looked at the New Age analogs, you kind of said, "Well, they have the same kind of attitude, so therefore it works." Like, I guess what I'm saying is that they were good, and Paul Romo was bad, <laughs> which is a which is an oversimplification. But 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 that is a great, I guess, like a, as a, as the the overused expression goes, maybe DX is uh, the exception that proves the rule.
0: But I think what you said there was important is they had the attitude, which is what Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko had, is that we're here to be the best. We're here to make money, cash checks, and get. Chances championships that's it and brian pillman is an interesting dynamic i think those are really outside of the original four it is um for me pillman malenko and benoit are like the three best non-original version and it's because dean malenko and chris benoit were perfect fits for the horseman brand and brian pillman was such a bad fit that it challenged what it meant to be a horseman.
1: Yeah, I think also I will uh, I'll defend Barry Wind the Barry Windham incarnation and in that um like I agree that the Barry Windham someone who maybe I'm a little young for and I didn't see him in the early to mid 80s when he was super motivated and and uh, you know a tremendous natural and stuff. So so I I I share your uh, millennial skepticism of Barry Windham. Uh, but at the same time, I think that that kind of early '90s incarnation—I mean, that was—it was really important in terms of, of getting Sting over. And I mean, that was kind of the main objective in WCW at the time. And the Barry Wyndham Horsemen were part of that effort. So, so I'll give them a little sugar uh, for their work with getting Sting over. Which I mean, that's once again—that's what the Four Horsemen are all about. They were all about getting over the top babyface, whether it was you know Dusty, whether it was Magnum, uh, whether it was Sting, or later on whether it was you know uh, Cool Heel NWO or whatever
0: that's because they were unlike the nwo out, the nwo was an outsider group that was trying to destroy the company they were in in the same way and and this is a really interesting parallel that i had not thought of uh aces and eights is a similar the goal of the Horsemen was to be the best in wcw or the nwa it wasn't to destroy it and take it over in the sense of conquering it and making it something new. They thought that the thing they were in was a really great thing. So part of the point of that is to put over the important baby faces, the important heroes in the story.
1: You know when, when we talk about like baby faces against heels, you always use the, or you always hear the analogy of slaying dragons. and those old school heels, Fought like dragons, and the dragon wants to get all the treasure and then sit on top of it. You know what I mean? Whereas the kind of postmodern heel, the kind of post ECW heel, uh, they want to see the world burn. Like they're someone who either because they're just too cool for school or because they're an uncontrollable, crazy person, like they just want to tear everything down. And I think that that's an important generational divide in wrestling. But at the same time, I think it's also maybe. I I want to word this carefully, but maybe there's a fine line there between what works and what doesn't work. Because if the villain's stated purpose is to destroy the whole world, like number one, that's the most hackneyed motivation for any villain in any genre ever, right? Is just to like, oh, just destroy the world because
0: evil. You have nothing else to do but harp on Dr. Venture? Why haven't you tried the world domination thing? You afraid of the big leagues?
1: Please, how stupid do I look to you? World domination. I'll leave that to the religious nuts and the Republicans, thank you. But I wouldn't be so quick to judge. The monarch
2: has his hands in many sinister soups. But, like,
1: on the other hand, like I said, that more old-school dragon mentality of I'm going to get all the treasure and I'm going to sit on top of it, well, then then you can work with that because you can have, you know, different knights run at the dragon and they have different degrees of success and maybe some people bring some of the treasure back or whatever, you know what I mean? This analogy is getting tired. But uh, but I think that is a key distinction between the, uh, the horseman and the NWOI. Stand by that five years later. Thank goodness we found something from the original JMS run that,
0: that I can hear said vaccine without getting a little cringy. And they also wanted to win the, uh, to bring it back to next week's topic, the NBA championship. That was a goal of theirs. They wanted to keep winning championships over and over again, and they were willing to rejigger their roster, do things that required them to jettison people they like, and have this kind of franchise mentality to try to get themselves near or at the top. And that's something you kind of saw every single, and this is something to bring it back to DX and all of that, something you saw. I can't think of another faction that could bring in someone and it wouldn't decrease the value of it. At, since, since then, basically like you look at the shield, it did not work though. It wasn't really their fault. It did not work when they put in Kurt angle instead of Roman reigns. It cheapened the brand of The Shield a great deal to not have all three guys. The Shield was not the Four Horsemen. It didn't have the franchise ability, nor did it have the great team. And I I think that's what's most interesting about the Four Horsemen is they both had a great specific roster of people that were transcendent in a way that allowed the franchise of the Four Horsemen to continue for basically, what, from 86, uh, that general area, to 1999, basically?
1: Yeah, almost 15 years.
0: And and not have it feel at any point like it was... Ne- I mean, there were points, I shouldn't say that, where... You felt disgusted it was still going in the way that you might with, say, DX or the NWO.
1: Yeah, I think there were some times that you felt bad for Ric Flair, like during kind of the early Hogan years, pre-NWO, where it's like they would talk about the Horsemen and they would talk about Arn and Flair that way, but they didn't really book in any way that kind of that really backed up the idea that they thought that, that really meant anything. It was like they were just like... You know, it's, it's like uh, mentioning some guy's obscure all-star game appearance in his, like, second season at the end of his career or something like that. Like, it just, if they just used it like some random reference point. Like, yeah, these guys, they're part of a faction that uh, means something, I guess, or at least used to mean something. And, and, and that was just kind of sad to see because it's like they were still the same people and maybe they weren't at the height of their powers the way they were in 86, 87, 88 Uh, you know what I mean? But at the same time, they were definitely still, like I said, like lunch pail guys who were going to get over the people you put them out there against. So it was kind of sad to see them, you know, nominally pay tribute to like, yeah, the horsemen, great, whatever. But, but at the same time to, to not really let them do their thing, which was to make the best baby faces look even better than any other people conceivably could.
0: So yeah. (laughs) Speaking of feeling bad for Ric Flair, uh, he kind of, Arn Anderson had to retire uh, because of a neck injury, unfortunately. Ric Flair did not have to retire because of a neck injury. He actually ended up going to TNA. And so there's, you know, ways to <laughs> pay tribute to a guy's previous career without, like, um, completely... Uh, I, d- I don't know how to describe fortune, Dave. Can you help me a little
1: bit? (laughs) Uh, Well, it was uh, Beer Money, uh, AJ Styles with bleached tips and a feathery Ric Flair robe, and
0: uh, Nigel McGuinness, right? Desmond Wolf? I believe so, yes. That was. Yeah.
1: So all great talent, but um, it it did not work.
0: Not good. At all. Really. Like, really. It set.
1: it actively set AJ Styles, James Storm, and Bobby Roode back like two years in their respective careers.
0: Yes, because it made them feel as though it was their fault. Like, <laughs> it made you... I should say, it made it made you feel as though it was their fault, that they had decided that this was a good idea to do. <laughs> it was that bad of a misfire. I don't want to say it was, like, in and of itself a terrible thing. If they had formed a faction and had made reference to it being, like, the Four Horsemen with Flair as the J.J. Dillon role, I think it could have worked. But they were basically like, it's the new Four Horsemen. You're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> whoa. Why is Ric Flair involved if it's the new Four Horsemen? Because he does not look like the Ric Flair that we, like, actually liked. He looks like Ric Flair in TNA.
1: Yeah, I guess by the same token, though, you could say that a few years earlier he did Evolution, and that was really just, you know... uh,
0: Triple H fantasy role playing as Arn Anderson, but I think that worked because oh no, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, because uh, because he's Triple H defender to the rescue. Yes, uh, Triple H is a good Arn Anderson. I think you actually tweeted that he is one of the best guy you paid you pay to see the guy he's facing, and I and I think that's why it worked is because. Triple H didn't try to be anything other than what it would be like if Arn Anderson was world champion. And I think that says to me that what you said earlier in the podcast is true, that it could have worked if Arn Anderson was the champion, the world's champion in WCW during some of the more lean years of the Four Horsemen, because he could bring people in, which is the fundamental idea of the Four Horsemen. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing people
1: together to accomplish evil means and get people over like crazy.
0: Yes, um, and get people butts and seats to watch them get their asses kicked. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Important as, distinction. Yeah, as, speaking of which, uh, we didn't want to give you necessarily like specific matches, but uh, you said you wanted to give like a specific time frame that you thought was particularly great for the four horsemen because of the way the network. Looked. Yeah.
1: So, so really just zero in on that, that Crockett NWA JCP content, like between, you know, uh, late 86 and 88, uh, right after clash one. So that's kind of the end bookmark right after clash one, Arn and Tully go to WWF to be the brain busters. And that's kind of the end of the original and kind of best, most focused version of the horsemen. So on my end, I would say, yeah, look for stuff, uh, between uh, late 86 and uh, and uh, Clash of the Champions 1. And that's just when everybody's at the height of their powers. Everything's firing on all cylinders. And um, really, Jim Crockett promotion slash the NWA for a couple of years, though there really does look every bit the company that the WWF is. They just weren't able to sustain it for several reasons.
0: Yeah, which you can watch the JCP... WWE documentary if you want, the WWE story on why that
1: happened. It involves jet fuel.
0: Speaking of the NWA, uh, before we go, you wanted to plug a specific column you were writing or should be out next week, right? Yeah, definitely. This
1: column should be dropping a little later this week. uh, By the time you're hearing this, I guess, Um, probably closer to when the next episode of ML Fusion is on. So probably this will drop on Thursday or Friday. Um, But I kind of took a look at the MLW World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, They are in the very unique in this day and age and also very difficult uh, position of really trying to get a brand new world heavyweight title over. I mean, even if you look back at the early days of Impact and TNA, I mean, they, you know, they leased the NWA titles for a couple of years to really get off the ground because it's just so difficult to to build a new title. And, you know, the NLW title was around a little bit 15 years ago, but frankly, they're starting fresh. So I really, uh, I kind of identified three important things that a title needs to be or needs to do in order to become a truly you know great title and i did a little assessment of you know where is mlw right now with regards to getting the title to that top level what are they already doing well uh, what do they need to do better and what needs to change so uh, that'll be dropping on the wrestling estate late next week uh, if you follow me on twitter at dave Wright's junk uh, I'm sure I will be tweeting out the links like a madman when it drops. So just follow me on Twitter. That's the easiest way
0: to make sure you see and it. And I got a sneak peek of the column. It is very good. I enjoyed it a great deal. Um uh, well, thank you. You can check out JuiceMakeSugar.com for my wrestling content. And you can also follow me on Twitter at the Nixter. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. Don't forget to check us out on howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. And don't forget to check out next week's episode on there at uh, howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. It will be, as we said, on the Golden State Warriors, who, as we record this, are winning their third championship in four years. Or you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, Please rate and review us. I would prefer five stars. Dave believes that four stars are okay uh next he'll be voting for a communist in texas i was i hope you were gonna say viva la Revolucion," but i, I guess
1: oh see i couldn't think of anything snappy fast enough i was wondering i was i was trying to figure out what the hell i would be doing in texas other than voting for a communist which i mean that's a hell of a cause
2: we are proud to represent the nwa we're proud second of all maybe even first of all to represent your company i'm talking jim crocker promotions by being the World Tag Team Champions in various states, very easily, we are the best at what we do. You didn't hear any music. You didn't see any face paint. You don't see any glitter. What you see is plain boots and plain tights. And what you also saw was plain wrestling, which is on the marquee. These days, our business gets glamorized by different aspects and different people. There's some of them like to the call it showbiz. A lot of people like to think they're stars. I'm telling myself, Rick Flair, James J. Dillon, know that stars are in the sky and stars are in Hollywood, what we are as professional athletes. And every time we come to a building, you got to know, your brothers got to know, those people that have watched us for a lot of years got to know that's the reason they keep coming back. And last but not least, we got to know that whether we're sick, whether we're hurting a little bit, whether we got problems at home, or we had problems making our plane, that we give you 110% because that's what you pay for and irregardless of what you think, Luger these people that buy these tickets don't pay our salary his brother and he does and they pay us real well because we're worth every nickel now when you look in these eyes and you look at that match that just take place you see a little Anderson fire coming back because that's my roots I was learned it I was taught The old way it is take a body part and render it useless. And, my friend, a three-legged table is worth nothing to anybody. So in the Crockett Cup, that 20-inch arm of yours, Luger, can be just as useless as the one we just showed you. We are the best. We are the horsemen.